welcome to All the Future, Season 2, Episode 3. Like the first two episodes, we're a little behind releasing our actual conversation, but don't worry as it's another great one. We got to spend some time with Christine Kim, an investor at Greylock Partners, one of the preeminent venture capital firms. Christine was kind enough to call in from the beautiful island of Kauai to chat with us about the future of NFTs, importance of a trusted source in communities, plus what advice she might have given herself when she was 20. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're excited to have Christine on the pod today. How are you doing, Christine? So great. Excited to be here. Thank you both. Just so the listeners know, and I'm, I'm jealous, where are you zooming in from right now? <laughs> I am zooming in from the sunny Kauai. Although don't be too jealous because we've had a stretch of rain the past week, but like, you know, can't complain. Don't don't feel bad for me. I just want to let the listeners know that um, 25 minutes prior to this podcast was discussed um, all uh, Hawaii talk that I was left out of. So um, hopefully I will definitely be down there soon to visit you guys, uh, visit you, Christine. Yeah, if this podcast is short, it's our fault because we just ate up a bunch of time talking about Hawaii. <laughs> I'm sure it's beautiful there and, and hopefully I'll make it out there soon. But um, before we start getting to some questions, mind giving us a little bit of a background on you know yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I am an investor at Greylock, which is an early stage, multi-stage firm. So we invest at Seed, Series A, Series B, but really kind of broadly anything that covers and is in the technology industry. I'm on the consumer team and we at Greylight, we really don't have teams other than consumer and enterprise. And so consumer is also pretty broad. It covers everything from health and commerce and social, education, things like that. And so that's been interesting because it's a super broad view of things. And, and I feel like I've, the context switching and the breadth that in my current job is quite interesting. But Prior to Greylock, which I joined last year, and really in the middle of the pandemic, so that has also been an interesting experience onboarding and starting this job in the midst of everything going on. Prior to that, I was at Uber, and I was at Uber for five years, working in engineering and product, different parts of the business, but predominantly mostly on the Uber Eats business, where I was building out the Eater product experience, so really owning a lot of the core checkout discovery experiences. I also owned the web team and that was a great experience. I was at Uber for about five years. So saw that company grow from 2000 to 25,000 people, change leadership, go through tough times, go through IPO. Certainly a super interesting chapter in my life and, and the first job that I had outside of school. And prior to that, I went to Dartmouth. I studied computer science and that was a, kind of a zigzag route there, which really ultimately landed me in technology. And I think towards the path that I'm on now, but I entered college studying business and economics, had dabbled in banking and finance. So have a little bit of that in my roots. After you know a few internships in banking, I worked at Credit Suisse and Bloomberg. I really kind of made a pivot to switch into tech and study computer science. But it's interesting because now I feel like venture is almost like if finance and tech had a baby. There's a lot of similarities drawing from both of those previous experiences. So it's a, it's a good place for me now. Cool. Well, we'll do, we'll do, we'll start with the, the quick and quick and easy ones. But the first question we generally like to ask is predict when Bitcoin hits hundred K and you have to give us a month and a year. I would say for like decreasing inf- intervals of confidence um, within the next 12 months. And then I think actually possibly before the end of the year. So if you're going to hold me to like putting a year on it, I would say December wow. 2021. But um, somebody else gave the same answer. Wait, but you said it with decreasing confidence. So- yeah, I mean, next 12 months is like, okay, I have a little bit more confidence in that. I guess our window just gets smaller and smaller if you're going to have me pick a window. But I'd say before the end of the year, 
I think it could happen. And it's that's less of an educated guess. It's, I mean, it's totally a guess uh, and more of an observation of just how volatile and crazy things are. I mean, if you were to tell me in January even or in December that Bitcoin would be where it is right now or that NFTs would be, you know, what's going on with them right now. All of these things are just not necessarily shocking, but it's it's just crazy to see how some of these things can really capture mainstream attention and grow super quickly. And so it's less take that guess as like, I'm super educated in the world of crypto and more just an observation of like, as an investor being, you know, seeing what's going on in the market, seeing what it's like to fundraise right now, or what it's like to be an investor right now, just kind of what's going on in a lot of things in consumer, things are changing super quickly. And I would not be surprised if it happened before the end of the year. What about the related, any strong opinions regarding NFTs? Lots of opinions in NFTs. We've actually been spending a ton of time there recently at at Greylock. I think it's interesting because there's certainly hype with NFTs right now. And a lot of the signals that, you know, we're in a bubble or in a gold rush like period for NFTs. Um, And so I would definitely expect a correction to some degree in what we're seeing, especially, you know, in some of the early use cases, we're seeing like games with NBA Top Shot, or you could call that a collectible, you know, Sorare is another one, CryptoPunks, digital art is certainly taking off, followed very closely what what was going on with people. And, um, you know, I think Christie's getting involved is is huge for, for credibility and in terms of the traditional artwork, art world taking notice as well. So there's just so many things like that that are going on that are definitely important to pay attention to. There's also other things that, you know, if you just look at some of the craziness for Top Shot, I'm not even a basketball fan or a super fan, yet I'm interested in owning these Top Shot packs because I'm like, it's a quick way to make money. Anytime I feel like you start to attract that kind of behavior, that's like, it's a quick turnaround. It's kind of driving gambling-like behavior. I would say that that's some signs of a bubble. You know, Charmin is now doing NFTP and they're getting involved. So there's definitely a lot of hype around it. And so, but I I would say the underlying technology is really interesting and really sound. And, And while there could be these hype cycles, I still think that there is something compelling here that will endure. And if you look at actually a lot of the companies like OpenSea, which is the largest you know marketplace for these digital goods, they've actually been in the game for several years. And it's not just something that you know these companies were not all just created a few months ago along with this craze. There have been people that have been intelligently discussing and having you know intellectual discourse around the topic of NFTs and what it means to tokenize goods. For a long time. And so I think I'm quite bullish on the technology itself. I'm really interested to think about applications that we don't even know of or can't even really think of today. Um, You know, like I said, we've been seeing some early adoption in visual art and games. And I think it makes sense why that is taking off because it kind of seems like this accessible, entertaining way to engage with this technology. But I think it's actually really interesting to think about other applications. So for example, if you think about the concept of selling equity, an equity stake in a creator or in a person, or what it means to be a patron for an artist or some, you know, someone who's going to be producing some work that you want to have a stake in. If you think about the opportunity to tokenize membership in a community or in a club where you can imagine there's a finite set of NFTs that grant you access to 
this community and with that you get access to you know maybe a private chat or you get voting rights and how you manage funds or there's a lot of interesting ways you can think about structuring groups and you know supporting creators and so that side of things gets me really interested in the technology i think the key here is like the utility aspect of nfts right because at the end of the day right you can just own an nft and just the concept of that is what's causing all this hype and demand but once that concept gets old once like owning an NFT is just everyone has it, it really becomes about like, what do I do with this and what opportunities and what like advantages do I have by owning this digital cryptocurrency? And I think like the companies that will build applications on top of ecosystems and economies that are being built by Dapper or by SoRare, those like systems and those games and those like feature sets that you can unlock are the future of NFTs, right? Because obviously they're laying the foundation right now, but without actual practical use cases for how to unlock benefits from owning NFTs, this thing's going to die out. That's why I'm very like bearish on just static NFT art, right? Because I don't really see any practical applications for that. But I do think Topshot and so are in, in particular, um, obviously there are some others, with act, which, which, actual, which actually have these like practical use cases and applications will have and will sustain out of this like bubble into the long like future years. Right. And that's kind of how we're thinking about it. I actually, I really agree with your perspective there. And like, for example, do I, am I collecting NFT art and digital art? I would not know. And I'm, I'm not first enough to even identify or know, you know, what's relevant in that space. Although I, I know there are players, Makerspace is one example. They're, they were actually the one who sourced the Beeple artwork for Christie's. So they're trying to, you know, establish some conversations around high quality art in this digital world. But I agree in terms of a lot of it feels like speculative and just for fun. And, and it's, it's hard to understand what the deeper utility is. But I think there's still something interesting in that it's bringing crypto and it's bringing NFTs towards, you know, just the mainstream awareness. And so while the use case in itself, digital art, collectibles, like little sticker sheets that you might collect, we can go on about which of those are going to dive really quickly, like CryptoKitties came and went. But I think each one of those are chipping away at what ultimately needs to be done, which is making this more of a mainstream way of transacting, of supporting artists, of actually, you know, displacing, I would say, the kind of centralized closed platforms that have historically been the marketplaces where people are buying products and, and transacting. And I think what's interesting about NFTs, like abstractly to me, is let's say if you simplify it down to like the creator and the consumer it's a better experience for both of them. So the creator gets to sell directly to their fans and audience instead of creating product that gets stocked on someone else's shelves and you know that platform takes a cut. Consumers get a better experience because they are not only just like literally supporting creators, but they kind of get this patron, they get to play the role of a patron, but they also financially benefit, right? From if I support someone who then goes on to be successful by participating or purchasing something that they made, then I can actually go and sell that and I can also financially benefit from that. So there's, this, there's an interesting, I think, way of connecting creators and consumers directly through NFTs that hasn't really been done you know, in traditional ways before that I think that that to me is the kernel in this that is interesting. And I agree, there's a lot of use cases right now that are more just sort of demonstrating the fun of, of what you can do with it. Not, not all of them will last. And so that's a difficult thing for sure to assess as an invest investor. On the flip side, on the customer side, to your point too, is like, of course, every customer that wants to be able to own a piece of or invest into a project or business of their favorite creative. Again, where else can you have that relationship? Basic space. So if you're a select member and then now you can start investing into your favorite artist, musician, fashion designer, athletes, business ventures and products and experiences directly within our ecosystem. What's really exciting about NFTs are it's not what 
others may think it is. But I think what we're talking about here is like taking mm-hmm. blockchain and NFTs and, and then applying in a different way or pe- the way that's not necessarily being done in a curated way, so to speak. And then that kind of brings then like, right, go, oh, now I don't have to go through all these marketplaces, see like what digital art is cool or real or worth what and that, like you can go straight to the source and then do the top down approach. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes easier to consume and then hopefully drive more value. And then that obviously will hopefully make it more mainstream. And yeah, and it's all about like market adoption, right? Because a lot of us talked about this even years ago. It, it was such a nascent thing back then, even just explaining crypto and blockchain. But now that it's becoming more mainstream and that every day in the morning on CNBC and Bloomberg, it's all NFTs. Literally. Um, so it's an exciting moment for a lot of us. You're lowering the barrier to entry in a meaningful way by removing the speculation aspect of like, hey, I want to get into NFTs. Like, obviously, there's top shot and, and the big players, but like out of everything else, like what's good? Like, what's going to last? What's um has sustainability long term? And if you're being that you're building that ecosystem, which is partnering with all the like big players in the space of culture, art, fashion, athletics, like they will come to you because you are like the curation and removes speculation and it rhymes. But um, that's like a, a huge piece of the puzzle. I love that you guys are using the word curated too, because yeah. one way that I've thought about what we're seeing with some of the marketplaces where you can find and discover these NFTs is I'd almost put it on a spectrum On one end of the spectrum, you have closed marketplaces. I would say So Rare and Top Shot are great examples of these where the product is essentially centrally designed and owned and they're creating the game engine and, you know, they're releasing all the packs. It's not a collective of artists that can publish work. You can't apply to sell something on there. It's it's pretty, it's designed to be this closed ecosystem and then you're going to buy the pack on top shot. You're going to sell the pack on top shot. I mean, you could argue that you might want a gallery where you could look at all these things across all the platforms, but essentially these are closed platforms. Not everyone can participate them on the supply side. The supplier is essentially centralized. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have players like OpenSea where you can pretty much tokenize anything and or, or sell anything that is tokenized. And so it could be a physical product. It could be digital artwork. It could be a domain name. And I think there's value in all, both sides of these plays, they both have diff- a different set of problems. I think with the closed marketplace, it's not really realizing, I think, what is interesting about NFTs, which is this permissionless architecture where kind of anyone can get involved and it's de- it feels very centralized, certainly. Yep. And then on the open sea side of things or the very open way of things, that is feels closer I would say philosophically to what this technology should be used for, but still it's like, well, how do royalties get enforced? How is there licensing? How, what about authentication for these kind of things? Who's actually curating or helping consumers sift through everything that is available on this marketplace? It's very, it, anything can technically be sold on there. And so what's interesting is maybe somewhere in the middle, which I love the word curated, which is simultaneously open in that it should support a huge breadth of artists or creators who can sell and create interesting works through there, but maybe somewhat created in that there is consistency in the type of product or the angle it's like for sports or for fashion. Or I mean, I think the list can kind of go on, but I think it's interesting to think about where you sit in that. And right now we kind of see a lot of plays across the spectrum and then they, they each come with different a different set of challenges. I think one is a little bit easier to grasp and participate in, but looks more centralized, like I said, while the other is 
a little bit more heady and I would say it fits what the technology was designed to do, but feels pretty far from, you know, the experience that we would normally expect in consistency. And I would say it, it just feels kind of a little all over the place there. So yeah, I mean, it's Dapper is running a walled garden with flow right now. It's like not really yeah. true to blockchain, right? Like their terms of service is preventing like automated manipulation on the marketplace, which is like, that's what's, that's what's supposed to be unlocked by like doing something on blockchain right now. So um, yes, they're in beta. And I think Roham, their CEO has been like very, like very vocal about saying that this is a temporary measure that they're putting in place. And like long-term, they are going to like become that true to that blockchain ideology, which, which, which you were like speaking about. So I guess we'll have to wait and we get, we do have to cut them some slack yeah. for, for being a, bit, a beta. But yeah, I think what you're saying about OpenSea is that they are like, yes, they, these guys are true to blockchain, but they lack vertical, vertically focused application, which is kind of like the most important part here. You kind of need a, a mix between both, like you said, where you have like the openness and the like trueness to ideology of blockchain with OpenSea, but with the vertically focused application of TopShot. And I think like, obviously we're still new and this is like the infant stages, but as we kind of progress, I think we will meet that happy medium. On top of that, I'm kind of curious, besides obviously basic space and scout and whatever, uh, me and Jesse, like... Are there any companies that are building on top of the either Flow or of um, OpenSea that like are interesting right now to you that you guys are thinking to look at or just companies in general that we should be watching out for um, that are like can become big players in the space soon? Yeah, I think one um, I mentioned really quickly is Maker's Place. Um, I think it's interesting that they're trying to take a stance in curating and identifying high value art for digital art understanding that, okay, the public is looking at what's going on and has no idea of like what the value of these digital artworks should be. And, you know, if there's even any value in actually collecting this, and if you actually believe it's, you know, just as compelling of a medium as photography or canvas art or any sculpture, any of the other things where this sort of rigor has already been established, they're trying to kind of build, I guess, some some structure around high high quality art, assessing that. Um, and they definitely made a splash as they were the ones who sourced people for Christie's. I think another interesting one that I recently met with is a company called Everbloom. And they're coming at it from the perspective of a creator, of the creators. They have partnerships with, um, and it's not my place to share, but a bunch of sort of Gen Z relevant creators, think like the TikTok YouTube set. And they're going to help, they want to help them create a set of digital products that will feel authentic to whatever that creator does. So if the creator is a photographer, maybe it's releasing a limited edition set of photos. If that creator, you know, loves makeup or merchandise, there's a way to accompany like a physical, per- you know, something that you purchase in the physical world that comes with a digital experience that can be tokenized. So I think that's an interesting company. I think I highlight that name as well, because in it, I think NFTs is one area that we've been spending a lot of time in. We've also been spending a lot of time in I would what I'd more broadly call the creator economy. Um, and that's just kind of following this thesis that increasingly everyone is a creator. I think if you were to ask me five years ago, a create, creator was maybe just an influencer. And, and that was a more narrow version of someone who was just a model on and I don't want to say just, that kind of belittles it, but basically a model on Instagram, maybe they're doing travel or fashion. And I think we all kind of know what we and can envision someone when we think of influencer. And then there was celebrity and those are kind of the tiers. But now I think that landscape is just changing so quickly. And really anyone who is monetizing even part-time creative talents is a creator. So anyone who's podcasting, who's writing, who's teaching. And I think increasingly too, people are doing this as a side hustle or part-time. And I think we're increasingly shifting our definition of what it means 
to have a job and a lot of people have multiple sources of income or multiple projects going on. I think, look at both of you, you both run your own companies and you're both running this project. And I think, you know, VCs have been doing this for a long time, putting out content wherever they can for personal brand and things like that. But I think increasingly people are just looking at themselves in this way. Like what's the value of my personal brand? What kind of knowledge or experience or creative talents do I have that I can share with my audience or my community? Even if you have a small following or a small community that is relevant. And I think that, yeah, so the definition of who a creator is, is changing. So I'm quite interested in any company that's building for that audience, which is, I think, just a growing segment and also changing quite rapidly. That is a really interesting place for basic space to play in because you can be this curator, but still give the creators and the individuals a voice. Take a step back and think of like, why are creators on the rise? Why is someone with just a thousand or 10,000 followers relevant? And it used to be that the model was like, you had to have a ton of scale and a huge reach, like reach of a popular magazine before, you know, you could actually kind of monetize that attention and followership. But I think we as consumers relate to individuals on a lot on, on a deeper level and actually trust them as tastemakers a lot more. So if there's a space where we can actually find, you know, those a thousand, a hundred people that are selling clothes or selling art, but it's still curated at a high level, it's this mix of like, you want a platform that can curate that so I don't have to sift through everything, but I still at the end of the day want to connect to the individual. There's a reason why. I don't really trust what like, even though it's crowdsourced, the top thing on TripAdvisor, but I'm going to care what my friend or what the specific travel influencer who matches my style and my vibe recommends. There's a reason why, you know, like Emily Oberg, she was on your podcast and I love, I love her content. She's powerful as an individual brand more than even, you know, her, uh, her creative concept, sporty and rich, because people just love her taste and love what she's doing. And I think people want and consumers want a space that feels curated and understands like you understand what I'm looking for. So I don't have to sift through a lot of stuff that doesn't match, but I can still identify with the individual on the other side at that, um, you know, more direct level. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious, um, like obviously uh, valuation is, like, is more of a pressing topic than ever. I think in the current day, valuating a company, obviously um, everyone has uh, their way to do it. Kind of curious um, how you kind of like look at a, a, like a like valuing the company. Maybe like a time and walk us through a framework you kind of ran through for a previous company you invested in. We're curious to hear from an investor's point of view of like how do you really value the business outside of GMV and retention and cohort data and all that stuff. Yeah. So this is a great question, and it's actually an incredibly hard question for me to answer because I actually don't think there's really a framework for this. And maybe all firms are a little bit different and and some are more rigorous and more analytical and numerical for attaching a valuation to a company. When you're an early company, maybe raising your first round from institutional investors or even your series A or B, there are so many unknowns that the exercise of trying to come up with a specific valuation I mean, it'll be a good exercise to prove to yourself that you think the market is big enough and there's a big enough opportunity, but the numbers are always going to be really wrong. So that is actually not really a focus for us when we're looking at companies. I will admit, as we get to later stage companies or we're doing growth rounds, you do have more numbers and metrics and traction and growth rates to look at that would be signs that this is a business that is not only growing, but growing in a large, has large TAM and the GMV looks like it's on a good pace. You you can kind of do a lot of those, I would say, valuation frameworks, or you can do some interesting modeling there. 
So for example, when we participate in, let's say, a later stage company like a Series D or Series E, and there's there's a lot, I would say, more valuation techniques that start to look more like banking valuation, where you take GMV, you project it out, you apply some assumptions about the growth rate, you look at revenue multiples that public competitors are trading at, you make an assessment of where you think this company, how much longer does it have to go before it IPOs and kind of some estimation of where that will, what you think it'll price at when it does go public. So that generally applies to, I would say, much later stage companies and the ones that we are typically working with. And even those exercises, who knows what would happen? I mean, even when you hire professional bankers, right, to price your IPO, they can't even get it right. Like Roblox should be 65. No, it should be 40. Or originally it was going to be 45 and then it got bumped up. And so I think they're all estimations. They're valuable to run through. But I would say the reason why this question is hard is because we actually don't have those. We don't have the ranges for, well, company at seed at seed stage should be between one and $10 million. And a company at series B should be between 20 and a hundred million. I mean, their ranges kind of exist. So you generally can smell when something is like way off base, but I would, I guess my point here is really, that's just not something that we really focus on. And to, to illustrate that, like we'll often take a meeting before actually caring what the valuation of the company is, or, you know, we generally want to know we're aligned. Like, are you raising series A or are you raising series D because your capital requirements are going to be a lot different. We might, you know, in the former situation, we're more in a position to lead that round. If you're raising series D and E, we'd be more of a participating investor and want to actually find a growth investor to lead. So those questions are important, but I would say that tends not to be like the thing that we fixate on. And often it's like covered in the last minute of a call. You know, we're spending most of the call trying to understand who the founder is, what the market is, what the product is, making you know an active decision along the way of whether this is something that roughly is shaping up to be a pretty compelling company and opportunity. And it's really the last minute that we're like, okay, let's talk about the timeline, what you're raising. Have you set a valuation target? Some companies don't have a valuation target that kind of organically emerges as you get term sheets or as you talk to different investors, a number kind of naturally feels right, but it's quite imprecise. It it definitely feels more like an art than a science, especially when it's early. And I would say to share like an investor's perspective, when we're valuing a company, it's less about the number early on for sure. And more about a general checklist, if you will, of things passing the bar for us. And so we're looking at I would say general investment criteria, the team, first and foremost, is it a strong founding team? Does this founder have a compelling story for why they're working on this? You know, what's, you know, how did they arrive to this insight that, or this opportunity that they're building to this product can be potentially massive. And sometimes actually those markets appear really small at first, but then they actually grow to be quite large. I'm, you know, quite familiar. I come from Uber, so I'm really familiar with DoorDash's business and even Uber's business, which was first framed as black cars or DoorDash was just really like pizza delivery. That's so small, but really those markets end up being quite huge when you think of enabling delivery for all restaurants, or you think about tackling all peer-to-peer transportation. So I'd say potentially massive markets, and that might do some digging to things that, you know, appear small at first. Third is defensibility or kind of that question of, is there a moat? What is the tech that you're building? We would love to see strong growth. Often for your first round, you might not be even live. You might be pre-launch. You might not have strong growth. Um, but for whatever, if and then as soon as 
you know, for products that do have a product live or are generating revenue or do have users, it's the growth rate that I think is more important than the GMV or number of users itself. And then we would want to understand a clear path to monetization or, you know, a good business model around monetization. So it's more of a, that, if anything, Truman, you use the word framework. That is kind of the framework that we're using when we're evaluating companies. I would say the number, the amount of capital that you're raising that just starts to smell right in terms of like how what you plan to use the capital for, what the valuation is. But it's rarely us driving that decision of like doing all this, you know, Excel modeling to help you arrive at a number. I would say that's much less important at early stage. Super helpful. Can we end with two personal questions? Absolutely. I'll start with one and Truman, you can do the other one. All right, let's do it. If you had to pick you know, your last dream job, forget venture for a second. And I know you're still, you know, relatively early in the career and I'm sure you've got a lot of things you're considering, but like if money wasn't the issue, like what would be the ideal thing you'd be doing as your last quote unquote job? I love that question. There's almost two co- two sides to this coin. So in one sense, in terms of a corporate job, VC was kind of my dream last job. Um, but I think oh, wow. I had preconceived notions of what it was like. I thought, and and I think the industry is actually changing to, you know, the industry is making a lot more space for younger voices, more diverse voices to have a seat at the table. I think previous to this, it was more of a kind of club of people that, you know, you had a longer career in tech or you successfully built a company and then you kind of not retire, but like you graduate to VC after, you know, a decade or two or longer in the tech industry. And so that was to me always like what I thought of VC like. I always thought it was, to be frank, older white guys sitting around a table deciding who to give money to. Right. And it's actually so not like that. And I think that's partially because the industry is changing a lot. Like I said, making room for younger and more diverse voices. But yeah, I, I think on in a corporate set in a corporate way, I guess I have to pick a new dream job because now I'm sitting in the seat and it's a lot different than what I expected it to be. But I also like that you asked if money was not an object, in which case it's like, what would I be doing for fun? Or, you know, if I I can pull myself out of the corporate setting, I guess. And of course I'm sitting here in Kauai living this lifestyle and pace. And I mean, it would totally be to have a farm or maybe like a lifestyle concept store that so it sells ceramics to people like Jesse when they come visit as a yoga studio or like a surf shop or a surf like hostel on the side. I really like these experiences around, or I guess businesses around experiences and hospitality that kind of blur the line between, you know, re- retail shop mixed with a yoga studio mixed with, you know, a vacation place that you can stay. That's like a bed and breakfast. I kind of like these, but it would be really small scale, you know, maybe, we would only be, you know, having a hundred guests at any given time or even smaller. So something that is plugged into a community in like that tactile way, slow pace. I would love doing that if, if money was no object. Well, Jesse, I want to hop in and um, fire a few away. Um, is there like short answer ones? So just say yes or no. Do you own a Tesla? No. Do you own a Peloton? I do own a Peloton. Cody Rigsby is the best. <laughs> um, and then the, the one I'm like most curious about is like, if you can rewind time and go back to like just graduating, um, Dar- is it Dartmouth, right? Mm-hmm. What sort of advice would you give yourself at that stage? Me at 20 was not doing nearly as much as what you're doing now. I'm trying to think back what I was doing. I was probably an econ major at Dartmouth. 
planning my life to the T, thinking like, okay, I'm going to do banking for two years and then I'm going to, you know, switch over to the buy side or then do business school. Like those kind of routes set you up for this. Like all of a sudden you have this like 10 year plan and then you're going to like slot in marriage and schedule when you have kids. And obviously life does not happen that way. And so probably what I tell myself at the time is like, it'd be like, girl, stop planning your life. You're, it's not going to happen the way you plan. I mean, it's important to have a North star to help you move along at the beat of your drum every day. But I think super important to be open-minded and opportunistic when, you know, opportunity knocks at your door and requires you to pivot or question the path that you're on, but it's interesting, take that jump. And so I reflect on things that have gotten to me where, to where I am now, and they've all been things that I could have in no way planned. And they were just kind of chances that I took. So I wouldn't have even joined Uber or a tech company if I didn't randomly take a CS class just because I had an extra room to fill a specific credit at Dartmouth. And that kind of put me on this journey of like, oh God, well, I'm a junior. Should I change my major? I've already almost finished my econ major. I don't want to take all these CS classes my senior year and not have a fun senior year. I mean, but I just kind of followed it. I was like, this is really interesting material. I want to study it. And then I don't think I would have taken any VC calls um, with that preconceived notion of like, oh, it's this thing that you do when you're older. I don't, I just want to be focused on what I'm doing now. And so everything that has kind of opened a door or, you know, led me to some meeting someone interesting has been totally unpredictable. And so I would tell myself at 20 to stop planning my life and just kind of, you know, be open to changing course, pivoting. And I would say it's really just that opportunistic, open-minded mindset. 